Thank you, Father Emmanuel, for your gracious words. And let me add my voice to the voices of many who have already expressed their gratitude to the Thomistic Institute at the Angelicum for putting together this beautiful colloquium. Thank you, Father Thomas White, Father Emmanuel, and your able and amiable collaborators, sisters Mary Michaela, I hope I got the name right, and sister Thomas Miriam. My essay has a proximate and ultimate aim. I believe you have the text. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'll be speeding through it, so to speak. My proximate aim is to undertake an analysis of Thomas Aquinas' philosophy of law in the Summa Theologiae. My ultimate aim is to discern what may be described, albeit arguably, as Aquinas' political philosophy and its presupposed understanding of human nature. An undertaking such as this must take into account two sets of possible objections. In concrete terms, one is obliged to admit that for at least two reasons. If there were to be a recitation of a litany of political philosophers, the name of Thomas Aquinas would most probably not feature. First, his credentials as a philosopher and the relationship between philosophy and theology in his writings remain a bone of contention within and outside the circle of disciples. Among his disciples are those who would prefer to see him more as a theologian than as a philosopher. Outside the circle of disciples, one cannot but cite the example of Bertrand Russell, who, on the grounds of undeniable antecedent Christian influence on Aquinas' thought process, would argue that Aquinas was not a philosopher. Secondly, unlike Plato, who bequeathed the Republic, Aristotle, who wrote the politics, Machiavelli, who authored the prince, to mention but these, Aquinas is rarely considered to have bequeathed any term worthy of the attention of scholars of political philosophy in liberal democracies of our time. To the first set of objections, I respond by submitting that the position one takes on the question of whether or not Aquinas was a philosopher would largely, perhaps solely, depend on the stand a commentator takes on Aquinas' use of Aristotle in the construction of his thought. Father Torrell has provided an excellent resume of, the, of three divergent opinions on this matter. I wouldn't go into all that. But uh, while acknowledging with Torrell that this manner of formulating the question is somewhat outdated, I contend that the relevance of the question endures in the question of whether or not Aquinas could be said to belong to the club of political philosophers. I shall further argue that the first position that Torrell refers to, that of objectivity and fidelity, 
would imply reducing Aquinas to one who simply philosophized as Aristotle did. And the second would, would portray an Aquinas who, in theologizing, knew how to distance himself from philosophy. And the third would describe an Aquinas who, in theologizing, never distanced himself from philosophy, but recognized the autonomy and limits of philosophy, thus showing that there ought to be a distance, sorry, there ought not to be a distance between faith and reason. And this will be consistent with the intellectual option he announced in the Summa Contra Gentiles, that the truths of reason are not in opposition with truths of faith. Insofar as Aquinas maintained philosophy and theology in methodological and epistemic proximity, it can be argued that even as theologian, In response to the second set of objections, I identify with the position of Ralph McKinney to the effect that since no one could philosophize outside his or her existential ambience, influence of antecedent Christian beliefs does not, in itself, nullify the validity of a philosophy. The problem then is not the influence of antecedent religious or cultural beliefs, but the relativist reduction of every philosophy to its existential antecedents. McKinney's panacea to such relativist reductionism is to maintain that whatever one's antecedent existential assumptions, a philosophical position must obey criteria which are public and intrinsically independent of one's motives for philosophizing. Now Aquinas provides us with a political philosophy insofar as he furnishes us with a philosophy of law that presupposes a philosophy of human nature, reinforces his treatise on virtues, and prepares the way for his theology of grace. An examination of the components of his definition of law leads to an identification of the human person whose life is to be regulated by law so envisaged. This essay, therefore, reads Aquinas backwards. It starts with his definition of law before looking at the features of human nature which that definition presupposes, and I identify them as rationality, relationality, and religiosity. Features Aquinas discussed before discussing law. The essay concludes by proposing three traits of human nature, these three traits of human nature, as responses to what Charles Taylor has identified as the three malaises of contemporary society and culture. The malaises of individualism, primacy of instrumental reason, and the political consequences of the two. So I go to the first. According to Aquinas' loaded and carefully constructed definition, law is nothing else than a certain promulgated ordinance of reason to the common good by one who has charge 
of the community. Now from this definition, a definition marked by regal clarity and brevity, remarkable features of Aquinas' language, according to Kajetan and Marie-Dominique Chenou, one is able to discern four defining features of law. The first feature of this definition is that law is an ordinance of reason. Law is the rule and measure of act, obliging us to act or to refrain from acting. Reason is the first principle of human act, and the first principle is the rule and measure of human act, ordering them to their end. Thus, law as rule and measure of act must be consistent with reason. This explanation already rules out an understanding of law as ordinance of the will. Law is not an ordinance of the will of the legislature, of the legislator, but an ordinance of reason. And the second defining feature of law in Aquinas is the common good. Law is ordered to the common good, says Aquinas, excluded by this defining feature, is a misconception of law as an ordinance made to serve the political and economic fortunes of the legislator or of an individual or of particular interest groups within a polity. Against the positivism, one must also identify what is included in this defining feature, namely, the moral intent of the law. To understand law as a precept in view of the common good is to understand law as intending the good. The good is the objective of morality. And the good is the common good. The common good is the human person which is unattainable outside a life lived in common, in the polis. By stating that law is meant to conduce to the common good, Aquinas is not just pointing to the connection between law and morality, he's also placing before us a philosophical outlook in which legality is subject to morality. This defining feature not only points to the difference between legality and morality, it also points to the difference between morality and ethics, especially as it is understood in contemporary discourse. It is one thing for an act to be permissible in law. That is legality. It is another for the same act to be in view of the good rightly understood. That would make it moral. It is one thing for an act to constitute acceptable behavior that would make it ethical. It is another for that which is acceptable behavior within a particular community of professionals, like legal practitioners, medical practitioners, journalists, movie stars, to mention but these, to be in view of the good rightly understood. By way of a summary, an act may be legal or ethic and or ethical, immoral. 
contained in this defining feature is the moral intent of law as that which is accomplished within a life lived in common, that is, within a political community. Insofar as the good which law intends is the common good, the purpose of law is the accomplishment of a moral project within a political project. For Aquinas, following Aristotle, the good is that which everyone desires. In other words, the good is not just a personal desire, it is a collective desire that is incapable of outside a life lived in common. Here then is the mutual inclusion of morality and politics that is often ignored in contemporary discourse. For Aquinas, following Aristotle, politics is the intelligent regulation of common life for the sake of the politics so understood concretizes moral norms in the implementation of the project of fulfilling our personal and collective desire for the good. Aristotle understood politics as the good of the polis and thus wrote the politics. Before him, Plato, with the same understanding, gave humanity the republic. Niccolo Machiavelli, after Plato and Aristotle, understood politics as a project of protecting the fortunes of the politician, not the good of the police, and hence wrote the prince. And the titles of those works point to the intent of their authors. The fourth defining feature of Aquinas' philosophy of law is promulgation. There is no law unless it is brought to the knowledge of those who are obliged by the law. Promulgation must precede application. And I emphasize this out of my experience of military dictatorship in Nigeria. The experience of military dictatorship in Nigeria provides an enabling impact for appreciating the import of this fourth defining feature. When I was born, I was born two years after Nigerian independence. Nigeria was under democratic rule. By the time I was attaining the age of four, there was a first military coup. And we've had two bouts of what I call pestilential military dictatorship from 1966 to 1979 and from 1983 to 1999. So my reading of Aquinas' philosophy of law is coming out of this experience. During those two periods of military tyranny, the military enforced decrees with retroactive effects and violation of some of them attracted the capital punishment. It was possible to be executed for a crime that was not punishable by death as at the time it was committed. The brief analysis of Aquinas' definition of law, which I have tried to undertake here, not only brings to our attention defining features of law in Aquinas' thought, it also provides or invites and enables us to see the understanding of human nature that informs Aquinas' definition. 
And as I said, I identify these traits of human nature as relationality, rationality, relationality, and religiosity. My reflection on these three has a brief preface. The conversational trajectory of Plato's dialogue on the Republic presents a dialogue within a dialogue that justifies this inference that a philosophical inquiry towards understanding the human person cannot be undertaken without a parallel philosophical inquiry into understanding the city. If we were on the Republic attentively, we would see that discussions on politics and human nature are two parallel discussions. Socrates and his friends began the dialogue by seeking to know what a happy soul would look like. Is it a just soul or an unjust soul? In an attempt to find an answer, it was decided to explore the possibility of describing a happy city. Is it a just city or an unjust city? Knowledge of the soul, of the human person, points to knowledge of the city. A just city is a cohabitation of just souls. Here, too, we see the mutual inclusion of politics and morality. A political community is just if its citizens are just. We cannot understand the anthropos if we do not understand the polis. Neither can we understand the polis if we do not understand the anthropos. Consciousness of this reciprocal relationship between anthropology and politics is a necessary condition for the resolution of what Charles Taylor has described as the three malaises of contemporary society and culture, individualism, primacy of instrumental reason, and the political consequences of the two. Distress in contemporary society comes from ignorance of human nature, of what and how it is to be human. By individualism, Taylor means what is considered by many to be the finest achievement of modern civilization. And he wrote, we live in a world where people have a right to choose for themselves their own pattern of life, to decide in conscience what convictions espouse, what convictions to espouse, to determine the shape of their lives in a whole, in a whole host of ways that their ancestors couldn't control. And these rights are generally defended by our legal systems. In principle, people are no longer sacrificed to the demands of supposedly sacred orders that transcend them. Modern freedom was won by our breaking loose from the older moral horizons. Modern freedom came about through the discrediting of such orders, the words of Taylor. And at least three consequences of individualism as a permissive society, a me generation, and 
narcissism. Then there is instrumental reason, which, according to Taylor, is the kind of rationality we draw on when we calculate the most economical application of means to a given end. Maximum efficiency, the best cost output ratio, is its measure of success. While this might be liberating, it comes with uneasy consequences. The fear is that things that ought to be determined by other criteria, says Taylor, will be decided in terms of efficiency or cost-benefit analysis. That independent ends that ought to be guiding our lives will be eclipsed by the demand to maximize output. The demands of economic growth are used to justify every unequal distribution of wealth and income or the way these demands make us insensitive to the needs of the environment, even to the point of potential disaster. Or else we can think of the way much of our social planning in crucial areas like risk assessment is dominated by forms of cost-benefit analysis that involve grotesque calculations putting dollar assessment on human lives. The primacy of instrumental reason is also evident in the prestige and aura that surround technology and makes us believe that we should seek technological solutions even when something different is called for. The political consequence of individualism and instrumental reason, the third malaise, is the destruction or erosion to make moral deliberation by institutions and structures of industrial technological society. What Taylor describes here in his illustration of the consequences of individualism and instrumental reason is a paradox. The paradox is this. Individualism, which was thought to be freedom enhancing, has been assisted by instrumental reason to make of the modern man or woman an inmate of the prison of freedom. I contend that these malaises are present in the global north and increasingly thanks to lingering effects of colonialism and the power and swiftness of social media in the global south. The three identified by Taylor represent a threefold dictatorship in which we live in modern times. The dictatorship of the individual, the dictatorship of technology, and the dictatorship of government bureaucracy. To this I shall return in the conclusion of this essay. The immediate task at this point it's a consideration of the three traits of rationality, relationality, rationality, and religiosity as presuppositions of Aquinas' political philosophy. These three traits counter the threefold dictatorship of our time. The logic and pedagogy of the Summa Theologiae are eminently indicative of these presuppositions. 
After all, in the great Summa, Aquinas' philosophy of law is treated only after his account of human nature. I begin with politics and rationality. The human trait of rationality is presupposed in Aquinas' definition of law when he says law is an ordinance of reason. To be recalled here is a statement that the good, by definition, is that which every creature seeks. It is obvious that a human being, like every other creature, naturally seeks its own good. And it does so in a way that is consistent with its nature. By nature, it is animated by a vital principle of activity, anima, that is endowed with intellective and sensitive powers. The human being thus belongs to the genre of animals, but there is a difference. While, like every other animal, the human animal is sensitive, unlike other animals, the human animal is sensitive and intelligent, and its intellective power operates rationally. The intellective power has truth as its object and moves towards this object from one thing understood to another that is to be understood. And that is why it is called a rational animal. It's a rational animal, that is, an animal who deploys rationality in pursuit of the good. In other words, the human animal not only seeks its own good, it does so intelligently and freely. It is able to know, it is able to choose, able to know the good it ought to choose, able to know the means necessary for the attainment of the good, and able to freely choose these means. But rationality is not the only attribute in the human being. We must also speak of relationality. That relationality as a natural trait in the human animal is presupposed in Aquinas' definition of law is seen in his understanding of the finality of law. The law is promulgated for the common good, says Aquinas. But the good cannot be attained in isolation because the human animal is not only rational, it is also political. Its natural habitat is common life. Here again is an instance of Aquinas' intellectual proximity with Aristotle, for whom the human animal is not only rational, but also political. But here too, by reason of this intellectual proximity, is an instance when misunderstanding of Aristotle has as its consequence a misunderstanding of Aquinas. The human being is not a political animal in the sense of one who deploys all, he, all of his or her resources towards attaining power, but towards organizing common life for the sake of the common good. In his definition of law, Aquinas rightly specified its finality as the common good. It is the good of the common life, of rational and political animals that human animals are. The purpose of the activities of moral agents that human beings are in their collaborative quest for the good, a quest that is collaborative because, by nature, they do not live in isolation. 
And because, again by nature, they cannot attain the good without living and working with others. And perhaps the most contentious, religiosity, the trait of religiosity, not only does a political philosophy in his understanding of law presuppose rationality and relationality, it also presupposes religiosity, that is the openness of the human being to God. It is of course the case that God is nowhere mentioned in that definition of law that opens the discussion. But there are pointers to, the, to religiosity as his philosophy of law unfolds. It is found in his definition of natural law as the participation of a rational intellect in eternal law, eternal law being divine reason governing the universe. It is also found in his argument for the necessity of divine law. With regard to the inclusion of rationality in the definition of natural law, one recalls first that for Aquinas, every agent of necessity acts for an end. Secondly, that it pertains to a rational creature to move itself to an end. And thirdly, that the last end of a rational creature is God. For Aquinas, the last end of rational creatures is God because man and other rational creatures attain to their last end by knowing and loving God. This is not possible to other creatures which acquire their last end insofar as they share in the divine likeness in as much as they are or live or even know. The mere fact of human rationality thus points to religiosity. The human animal has a natural desire for God because the human animal is rational. I have in this essay, coming to my conclusion, I've identified and examined the defining elements and presuppositions of Aquinas' philosophy of law. In this exercise, one encounters an Aquinas who takes human nature seriously in the political philosophy expressed in his philosophy of law. Law is an expression of rationality regulating affectivity in view of the fulfillment of the human animal. And this fulfillment finds its ultimacy in the beatific vision. The human animal arrives at its fulfillment when its natural desires are satisfied, namely the desire of the religious order or the desire for God this desire for God is expressed in the desire of the intellectual order or the desire for truth and in the desire of the affective order, which is the desire to love and to be loved. These three natural desires are presupposed in Aquinas' elaboration of his political philosophy. Law, rightly understood and intelligently promulgated, facilitates the attainment of these natural desires. I must, in this conclusion, attempt to fulfill a promise I made earlier in the essay regarding the three malaises of contemporary culture identified by Charles Taylor, individualism, primacy of instrumental reason, and their political consequences. 
These are not only present in the global north, as I have said, but also increasingly in the global south. Writing as an African, I recognize their presence on the African continent. Recent rise in xenophobia in South Africa corroborates my assertion. For decades, African scholars have evoked concepts of communalism in their writings as a counter-narrative to individualism. Julius Nyerere wrote of Ujamaa, which means brotherhood, as a form of African socialism. In African studies, students have been treated to a cocktail of concepts of African romanticism to argue in favor of an African humanism. Scholars of Yoruba culture and philosophy have written about Ajobi, a common humanity based on common ancestry. They've written on Ajogbe, a common humanity based on common neighborhood. What that in fact means is that I treat you well because we are of the same stock. While I abbreviate your humanity if we are not of the same stock, even if the color of your skin is black like mine, and even if we bear the passport of the same country, the ethnocentric traits of these evocations make of them ready tools in the manipulation of public opinion. Communalism bearing the garb of ethnocentrism has facilitated the reincarnation of Machiavelli's princes even through the ballot box. The emergence of individualist, individualistic tyrants through the manipulation of democratic means. History, of course, attests to the fact that before the recent wave of xenophobia in South Africa was the genocide in Rwanda, in Biafra, and in a number of African countries. Individualism is tyranny of the individual, and when such an individual is voted into office, common good is at risk. Instrumentalization of reason for its part, has its African expression in the marginalization of humanities in the education policy of a number of African countries. And I had to deal with this in a very direct way when we Dominicans in Nigeria were making an effort to obtain a license to run a university, a license from the federal government. That was when it dawned on me that for decades, the humanities, studies in the humanities have been marginalized in Nigeria. To amuse you a little, um, in 1999, when Nigeria returned to democratic rule, uh, there used to be a phone-in program on the radio every last Saturday of the month. The name of the program was The President Explains. And uh, then Nigerians had elected a very successful farmer, uh, a repentant military dictator, and a very successful farmer as president, Olusegun Obasanjo. 
And on one of those occasions, uh, a young man called him and said, Mr. President, I have a combined honors degree, but I don't have a job. And he said, in what? He said, in philosophy and psychology. And the president sighed. He said, you call that a combined honors degree, but I call it a double jeopardy. Why did you study philosophy? Why didn't you study agriculture? So you see the understanding, the marginalization of humanities. And um, when the Nigeria's oldest university was celebrating its 60th anniversary some years ago, I was invited to speak at a colloquium to mark that anniversary and to point attention to the danger of this marginalization of humanities. My paper uh, referenced there as uh, number 37 on the footnotes. My paper was on the marginalization of humanities in our educational system. Now, what does that entail in real terms? Uh, it means, for example, a university, a federal-run university in Nigeria must keep a ratio of admission of 60 to 40 percent. 60 percent of students must be in the sciences, 40 in the humanities. But thank God that is not uh, applied to private universities. In the belief that development is to be judged solely in terms of economic indices, and technological advancement, something against which Pope Paul VI warned humanity in Populorum Progressio. And in an attempt to catch up with technologically advanced countries, educational policies are formulated and implemented with a bias in favor of science and technology. The dictatorship of science and technology, of science without humanities, erodes moral values that are needed to safeguard the human animal and the environment. The political consequences of the reincarnation of Machiavelli's princes in despotic rulers and of instrumentalized reason can be seen in the creation and use of governmental structures and institutions by dictatorial regimes structures that inhibit freedom and ipso facto disable and inhibit the citizen from striving for the actualization of his or her potential and the collective potential of the citizens of a country. In a nutshell, ethnocentrism gives rise to individualistic tyrants who, instead of installing institutions that protect and enable the citizen, act as strong men and women who stand in the way of authentic development. The malaises of which Taylor speak are consequences of an attempt to do political philosophy without an adequate account of human nature. It would take a renewed recognition and appreciation of relationality to address the challenge of individualism. It would take a renewed recognition and humble acknowledgement of the limitedness of rationality to overcome hubris while celebrating the heroic accomplishments of reason. It would take the wisdom of sane religiosity to overcome the danger of instrumentalized reason. One of the causes 
are treated, once the causes are treated, symptoms are eliminated. Therefore, it would take a sapiential response and not a technocratic mindset to overcome individualism, the primacy of instrumental reason, and their political consequences. Aquinas's presuppositions of rationality, relationality, and religiosity therefore point to ways of overcoming these three problems. It takes faith to overcome the hubris of instrumental reason. But here, too, one must admit there are two problems. There is a problem of marginalization of faith, the exclusion of religion, as we have always known it, from the public sphere by those who would of reason. There's also the problem of marginalization of reason by those who would for the sake of faith. Aquinas overcomes the gap between faith and reason. As an African living in two worlds, the world of African culture and the world of Western culture, I note that whereas it has been said that the African is notoriously religious, it is also the case that in today's secularized Western culture, Aquinas' description of the human animal as religious will instantly generate vigorous objections from atheists and agnostics. Such objections are understandable. Isn't religion itself a threat to human existence, to peace and stability, to human dignity, some would ask? The Crusades and the Jihads, discrimination, untaunt, and friendship of expediency among people of different religious persuasions, pending the acquisition of superior firepower to impose religious convictions and conversions on others, inability to differentiate between piety and public nuisance. Do these not pose a threat to humanity? These objections border on the place of religion in legislation. My Nigerian experience teaches me that they are not only raised in Western circles, they are also raised in the land of my birth, where the delicate relationship between religion and politics poses a formidable challenge. But to be philosophically sympathetic to such objections and questions, it's not necessarily to assert that they fulfill all requirements of justifiability. Understandable as they may be, these objections are not necessarily sustainable. For the problem is not religion per se, the problem is the corruption of religion. Religion is corrupted when the human animal turns its addiction into a religion. The problem is man and his triple addiction to power, riches, and pleasures. In this triple addiction, power is acquired and maximized so as to maximize riches. Riches are maximized so as to maximize pleasure. And this is done in blasphemy, using the name of God in vain. When addiction becomes a religion, then I begin to worship the person I see when I stand in front of the mirror. That is, the self, the power addict in me. We must never overlook the transformative effect of religion rightly understood. It's not any kind of submission. If at all religion is submission, it is not submission to the love of power, but submission to the power of love, to God who is love.
The human being who is rational and political is also religious in character because there is at least one thing that preoccupies him absolutely and unconditionally in his search for the best way of life. Every human being is animated by an infinite desire for the infinite, restless in its desire for the truth, the good, love, and endless life. The human animal is perpetually desirous of the good of the intellectual and moral order. And underlying this search is the search for the good of the religious order. This is the religious dimension in the human person, the dimension that sustains every other dimension, the hunger that is in the human being, which is often overlooked. I always recall my most memorable summer studying in North America, 1994 World Cup in the USA. And um, there was an advert on the television of Snickers chocolate bar. And used for that advertisement was Tab Ramos, member of the US national soccer team. You find him uh, practicing some fanciful footwork with a football. And um, at a point, the jingle comes in. There's a hunger inside you. There's a hunger inside you. He was so preoccupied with soccer that he forgot the hunger in him. But uh, the hunger now is not the hunger that Sneakers chocolate bar can satisfy. It's a hunger for God, which often goes, but it is there. There's a hunger inside you. There is this religious dimension in the human person, the dimension that sustains every other dimension, which is what Thomas is pointing to in his elaboration of his philosophy of law, that there is a place for God in human legislation. This dimension manifests itself in rituals, and rituals, we must admit today, are not restricted to churches, temples, mosques, and shrines. They are found in sports and in music, in politics, in the academia, and in the stock exchange. In an essay entitled Nietzsche's Arsenal, those of us who are soccer fans, we know of the team Arsenal. In the essay Nietzsche's Arsenal, David Kilpatrick graphically describes this state of affairs. Referring to Nietzsche and the immensely popular game of soccer, he wrote, having just announced that God is dead, Nietzsche's madman asks, what sacred games shall we have to invent? If God gave one's life meaning and organized religion united people with a shared system of belief, something would have for this great loss. For all the various interpretations of what Nietzsche means, with his most famous or infamous words, first published in 1882 in the Gay Science, it is now a fact that Christianity in Western societies no longer plays the most prominent guiding role in the lives of the majority of people. Today, the cathedral has been replaced by the stadium. 
It is through sport that communities produce a shared narrative on the field of play where contemporary heroes are made and worshipped. Soccer, more than any other sport, is the global phenomenon that has most fully replaced religion in modern life. And talking of contemporary heroes, Nigeria's adventure in the 1994 World Cup came to an end because of Roberto Baggio. Baggio was able to eliminate Nigeria because Nigeria was leading Italy by a lone goal until 90 seconds before the final whistle. And he became a hero to the point that I heard some people were talking in Europe of Bajianism. <laughs> it is in fact the case that the denial of religion is in the name of religion, in the name of a point of reference which is held absolutely and unconditionally, in the name of whatever a human being cherishes most in his or her innermost sanctuary. In the theology of the Christian tradition, it is God. I must conclude by saying that considering the fact that it is largely limited to Aquinas' theory of law, this essay is by no means an exhaustive treatment of his politics. To do that would involve relating what he had to say about law with what he had to say about virtue and grace. For what Aquinas is proposing in his political philosophy can be summed up thus. In order to manage our common life as human animals who are rational, relational, and religious, we need to be schooled in virtue, reined in by good laws, and enabled by the grace of God in order to attain the common good, which is greater than anything material. It is for Aquinas the attainment of the beatific vision by the human animal in its return to God. The completion of the movement of the rational creature from God to God through the incarnate Logos, who is the way to God. Thomas synthesizes faith and reason in his entire project. This is clearly exemplified in his treatment of politics, the regulation of common life, in his philosophy of law. This synthesis of faith and reason allows the inclusion of religious beliefs in the political sphere. But not only this synthesis, the presupposition of a human nature characterized by rationality, relationality, and religiosity point to traits that provide an antidote to the three malaises of contemporary culture of which Charles Taylor speaks, the triple dictatorship that regulates our life in the modern polis, dictatorship of the individual, of technology, and of government bureaucracy. I thank you for listening. Thank you, Professor. I ask my question from the context of the complexity of the Nigerian society, where Muslims and Christians live together side by side, but operate.
from two different principles regarding the war. One, looking at the law strictly as the ordinance for imperative of the will, and the other acting or operating from the principle that only law mostly as ordinary or imperative of reason. Now you are lighter in your paper that the objective of the law is the common good. And the common good is unrealizable unless there is a life that is lived in common in the body. Now there is already a problem from this to understanding of what the law is and how the common good is to be attained. Is there any recommendation looking at the three features of Aquinas' political philosophy from rationality, relationality, and religiosity uh, that, can, that we can look at, that we then mediate, or perhaps we don't need the online situation where we have these uh, Christians and Muslims living together with this different understanding. Uh, is there a way that Aquinas' political philosophy can mediate in this situation so that the common group is actually realizable given the complexity of the Nigerian society? Uh, is there a way? My response to that is yes, there is a way. Uh, in the sense that um, Thomas has already given us a common language. Despite the diversity in the world today, that common language is our rationality. We can, we, we may have differences, we should have differences. The problem isn't that people are different, the problem is the lack of civility with which they, they, they should I say, mismanage their differences. When people sit together and reason together, they can, if, if not overcome their differences, at least agree on how to live together in those differences uh, without uh, working against a common good. And I think that, uh, th that points to the imperative of dialogue. Uh, unfortunately, today, dialogue is seen as um, an attribute of weaklings. We can come together, we can dialogue using a, the common language of human reason, such that despite our religious differences, racial differences, gender, whatever, uh, we can come to an agreement on how to live together in peace, how to live together in collaboration uh, for the common good. If that is not done, then we are all left to our whims and caprices we're left to live in a society where feelings take the driver's seat. At that point, we'll no longer be living in a city. We'll be living in a zoo where animals compete with one another. I think what is really happening is manipulation of these differences. And uh, those differences are best manipulated when reason is uh, marginalized or sent into exile. You see, for example, when you talk of uh, Muslims, Christians, uh, 
You know this back in Nigeria. There's a difference between the strain of Islam in northern Nigeria and the strain of Islam in southern Nigeria. There's a big difference. There is that tradition of tolerance and mutual acceptance in southern Nigeria that you don't find in northern Nigeria. Uh, I have amongst my distant relatives people who are Muslims. They're not going to violate my rights. They're not going to kill me. But um, I, I, the first place where I worked after my priestly ordination was in northern Nigeria, uh, a place that actually attracted Dominicans to Nigeria, Sokoto. And I know that in that part of Nigeria, if you convert from Islam to Christianity, the consequence was death. Whereas in southwestern Nigeria, I think we've had two bishops who were converts from Islam. That's what happens when people allow reason to take the driver's seat. But of course, we must also recognize the limits of reason so that we don't fall into what Charles Taylor calls uh, instrumentalized reason. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And thank you for representing uh, a world that we see too rarely in my part of Africa. I know, I don't think we have to go all the way to Africa to see the problem. We don't need Muslims and Christians to see the problem. Look at, look at the U.S. now. And here's the problem. See if you, if you have any wisdom or insight for this problem. One that says in every conscience mind that if your conscience is mistaken, if your conscience is mistaken, you are still doing something sinful if you violate your conscience, even if what you're doing is right. It's still sinful because you're doing what you do wrong. And now take a look at the US, where we have people who, who are on of a moral issue, the permission for uh, gay couples to get married, for example, and so on. People on other sides of these uh, fraud issues, where each side thinks their position is a matter of conscience. Now, how are we going to have laws that bring us together to a common end if an erring conscience finds, as the Bible says, if you make a law? repeatedly in your intervention and I think um, that is an issue to address the fact that we're prone to error and once we fall into error every other thing is going to be affected now what is the solution education rightly understood we have to educate that is form the human being to live in a to live a common life. Uh, whereas what, what has been going on uh, is that, um, yes, I speak of education as standing on a tripod, three legs, intellectual, 
ethical and technical. Permit me to use the word ethical now because I actually prefer the word moral. I think there's a difference between the two. However, in spite, instead of education on three legs, contemporary society, not just in the West, but increasingly in Africa, has been trying to pass across education on one leg. Technical education. That's the dictatorship of the sciences we're talking about. Technical education to the exclusion of intellectual and ethical components of education. Without education rightly understood, it becomes impossible to dialogue about our differences, and it becomes uh, impossible to correct error. We can only correct error in dialogue. I think that is one beautiful lesson that Plato has taught us. That's one beautiful lesson that is reproduced in the tradition of disputed questions in the medieval university that finds an expression in the different articles of the Summa. Can we educate ourselves, that is education rightly understood, not to reduce education to just production, consumption, and manipulation of gadgets? With that, we're able to learn virtue. We're able to learn how to relate with each other, even where there are differences. Without education conceived this way, the human being is reduced to a machine to be manipulated. And uh, the, the, the people who gain the upper hand will be those who are most adept at um, manipulating this machine to which the human being has been reduced. I think there's so much intolerance in the world today. Uh, we still have to talk of tolerance. Not tolerance of what is bad, what is evil, but at least a kind of tolerance that enables us, that invites us to listen to one another even when we are different. And not to impose a way of life on people where, for example, it becomes a criminal offense to practice the beliefs of my religion and to make those beliefs present in the public square. How we're going to do that, I think we have to rediscover what education ought to do. It's not about gadgets. I think we're so fascinated by the heroic accomplishments of science and technology that we have forgotten the human person. And those accomplishments are now destroying the human being. The human being is being destroyed by works of his own hands. Sorry, I think we have to start now that the conversation continue outside. Let me thank Father Anthony for his presentation.